0: Well, you have all probably heard the name Charles Manson before. It's a terrible way to start out a church service, right? Talk about Charles Manson. But I would gather that most of you, whether you're older or whether you're younger, have have heard of him. He was the serial killer back in California in 1969 who uh, was responsible for taking the lives of seven people, seven innocent people, and just brutal murders, senseless murders, but what you may not know, in fact, I would venture you probably don't know this. Charles Manson never laid a finger on any of those people. Did you know that? Now, I'm not here to defend him. I'm just stating a fact about this case that I was, have always been intrigued and interested by. No, there was a guy named Charles Tex Watson who was behind the murders. He wasn't the bloody uh, brains, the depraved mind that conceived of this. He was the bloody hands. In fact, if you could call the Manson family um, a mafia then you could probably say with certainty that Charles Tex Watson was the uh, designated hitman for this family. He was the one who carried out all these brutal acts. He was the mass murderer. He was responsible for shooting, stabbing, and ultimately ending the life of all seven of those people. And I'm not even going to attempt to rehearse for you t- or tell you how brutal, how bloody, how disgusting and grotesque those crimes were. You probably heard about it at some point in your life. It was gory work, and Tex was a very sick, depraved man, and he would tell you that today. But his testimony is really eerie, um, and it's also very compelling. And and strangely enough, I've read his testimony and heard it many times, it it strangely parallels the testimony of the man that you just heard about from the scripture from Mark chapter 5. In fact, before Tex murdered one of his victims, when he showed up in the middle of the night, he said this, he announced this, I'm the devil. And I'm here to do the devil's work. He, uh, he describes the time in his testimony between when he committed those acts and when he was arrested and sent to prison. He describes how tormenting that time was for him. I want to quote what he said. This was before he moved back to Texas. The, the murders were in California. He moved back to Texas to flee the law and to flee himself, really. He moved back in with his parents. He said this, my mother took me to the doctor. All I wanted to do was lie around in the dark. I ate very little. My mind was in turmoil as thoughts of Charles Manson's family and my own family's beliefs came into conflict and clashed. I felt Manson was wrong and that I had done the wrong thing. But I didn't know what was true. I did know there was a sick feeling in my gut. I would lash out in in anger. I was angry at myself for making such a grave mistake and for being in that situation I felt deceived and I needed to run, but I feared that the law would be looking for me soon. So I stole money from my parents and I flew out to Mexico and then to Hawaii, He's just roaming all over the place. There was no place to hide from what I had done. Changing locations didn't change what I had done or the real me in my heart. I left Hawaii and tried to get back to Charlie Manson by walking five miles through the desert. When I got to within five miles of where he was, I returned and couldn't go back. I went to Texas again instead. Nothing has changed. I was still depressed. I couldn't forget what I had done, and my heart was in turmoil. Even after traveling thousands of miles, there was no place to hide, and I wasn't emotionally strong enough to keep running. So in 1971, the law finally caught up with him in Texas, and they arrested him, and he was tried and convicted for seven counts Seven counts of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced and given the death penalty. But God wasn't finished with Tex yet. He had a plan for his life. Because in 1972, the Supreme Court overturned all death penalties that were sentenced prior to that. He made the deadline by about two months in God's providence. and made a lot of people angry, understandably, especially the families of the victims. But listen to this. Three years later, Charles Tex Watson became a Christian in prison. And I know when we say that, immediately we get probably a little bit skeptical. And I do too. I was skeptical when I read this story. But I have investigated many times his testimony. And this guy was transformed by the power and the beauty and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. He's truly repented, I believe, of his sins. He's asked forgiveness for all the families. And get this, he really doesn't want to get out of prison. Not because he just cannot ever forgive himself. He's been up for parole. As of last year, he was up for parole the 17th time and denied. But he's not complaining because he feels like God has given him a ministry inside that prison that nobody else has the privilege of engaging. He, He is engaging these prisoners that come in there that are helpless, that are hopeless, that are ashamed, that are guilty, that are suicidal, that want to end their life. He's able to reach them in a way that other people can't. It's really a compelling testimony to hear. Here's what he said in his own words. I came to Christ through many of his servants. They assured me that God loved me regardless of how great my sin and that he provided forgiveness through his performance, not mine. So shortly after he was saved, he began to do training in seminary inside the prison. He wrote three books that he didn't get any of the profit or the proceeds from. He started uh, an international ministry called Abounding Love Ministries in 1980, and he eventually became an ordained minister, and he's impacted thousands of people. He gives away his book and his testimony free to everyone that will receive it in prison. Somebody asked him, Charles, how has your life been so drastically changed? What happened? And he said, my beliefs changed from those of Manson to trusting in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Today, I'm very thankful for my new life in Christ and all he has done. God's grace of which I am so undeserving is the sole reason for my life and sanity after being in prison for all these years. Through these prison walls, text says, through these prison walls, the Lord has made a way for his testimony to be shared with thousands of people worldwide. So he was in a place of darkness before, anger, guilt. He was uncontrollable. He was violent. He was hopeless. And now he's a man of peace. He's a man of compassion. He's a messenger. He's proclaiming the good news. He's telling people inside prison, how the Lord has had mercy on him and shown compassion to him in a way probably no other prisoner has been able to do because God spared his life. It's really a remarkable testimony. He says, My past is a tragedy from, the point, from any point of view, but the previous three decades, my life has testified to the awesome grace of God, the grace we just sang about. If God can help me, he can help anyone I believe that God can use my life, the evilness of my crime, and the fact that he rescued me to give hope to others. What a savior. And there's three things that really strike me about his testimony that you can really see in this text about the demoniac from the region of Decapolis in this, in this passage, and it's this. Both men were enslaved, both men were liberated, and both men were sent back. It's really interesting both men were enslaved, both men were liberated, and both men were sent back. So let's look at this together. Now remember, if you're if you're here for the first time, you're walking into the middle of a big series. We're going through the entire Gospel of Mark, and you're also walking in the middle of a little series. We're about halfway through, and it's called Close Encounters with Jesus. It's the, the end of chapter four and all pretty much of chapter five where four different individuals encountered Christ in a powerful and compelling way, and they left changed forever. They were never the same. They were absolutely transformed by their experience with Christ. And it's interesting to me because Mark is really concerned to show a, a, an aspect of Jesus's life that I don't think the other writers do as well. And that's okay because they all have different purposes for writing their gospel account. You know, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I've told you before that Mark's gospel is the shortest, and it contains the least amount of teaching from Jesus. In fact, if you have one of those red-letter edition Bibles, you look at Mark's gospel, it's really short on the red letters because he's not so concerned with what Jesus said. He's more concerned with what Jesus did. And it's interesting to me, again, that of all the gospels that America really needs... We're, we are short on our attention span, aren't we? I mean, we're like the comic book generation. Give, give me the, is, Does it have pictures? Can I, can I see action here? I don't want to read a whole bunch of stuff. And that's Mark. We're, su- we're suspicious of claims that people make. Jesus saying he's the son of God. We say, don't, don't give me a lecture on what that means, that you're divine, that you, you're 100% God, 100% man. Just prove it to me. Show me that you're God. What would God act like if he were here? Mark answers that question. He answers that question, I think, because he's writing to people just like us. He's writing to Gentiles who were probably Romans, and they were obsessed with power and authority. They couldn't get enough of it, and so Martin delivers. And I think more so than any other miracle that Martin describes, this one captures his interest the most because he provides the most amount of details. In fact... I feel so torn here. If you were to ask me, which of your children are your favorite? There's so much information here that we can't cover all of it. So I'm having to really pick and choose what we want to focus on uh, for the purpose of this message. That's why I picked the outline, enslaved, liberated, and sent. So this is all about action. This is all about power. Mark wants you to see that Jesus not only has compassion, he does have compassion. He is filled with mercy and tenderness. And Jesus is so gentle when he encounters this man. But Jesus also has power to liberate and to free people that are enslaved and that are in bondage and that are just wracked with these uncontrollable desires and lust and passions in their heart. Mark is writing to people that needed to hear that, and I'm convinced we do too. In fact, this is the gospel that I would give to most Americans, and this is one of my favorite stories. It's been so meaningful to me over the years. Mark loves action. So what is going on here? Well, if you could look back, the the sermon from last week is on the website, um, www.gracelifeflorida.com if you want to download that. But we talked about, this started out, this is all the same day, okay? Jesus has been teaching in parables all day. He was exhausted. He got in the boat with the disciples. He said, let's go across to the other side, which would have been weird to the disciples. And let me tell you why. Because on the east side of the Sea of Galilee is this Gentile area, that's dominated by Greek influence, Greek ideas, and it's called Decapolis. That just means ten cities. There were ten cities over there, and I want to tell you, it was the Vanity Fair of the Middle East. It was a filthy and disgusting place. It would have been like the armpit or the Las Vegas of Israel, okay? No Jew went over there. That was an unclean place in so many different ways. There were bloody gladiator games that were over there. There were lewd theaters, Uh, There were people that were competing in the Greek athletics that were naked. The Jews probably could see the temptation because it was eight miles across. They could hear it. They could probably even smell it, but they never went over there. In fact, I've read commentators that say when Jesus was teaching the parable of the prodigal son that went to a far country and ended up caring for pigs, maybe it was Decapolis because they raised pigs over there. I don't know. But that place was like this emblem of uncleanliness. And Jesus said, let's go to the other side. So it's been a long day for the disciples and for Jesus. This terrible storm that threatened to capsize their boat, and he stilled it. He calmed it. He muzzled it. He controlled it. And then they get to the other side, and what's going on? Look at this. This is, this is really humorous, and it's okay to laugh when you read the Bible, because check this out. They, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Now, hit the pause button there for a minute. It's been a long night for the disciples, hasn't it? I mean, they've seen some things that probably wigged them out. They're saying, who is this in this boat with us? Even the wind and the waves and the sea obey him. So they, t- you know, the the... the after the miracle, the sea is crystal clear and they probably just bumped up against the sand and it's time to get off the boat. And here comes this naked, bloody, screaming lunatic from out of the tombs. I mean, this has all the makings of a, a, you know, something that John Carpenter, some kind of Stephen King thriller. It's, at, it's late at night, there was a storm and there's a graveyard and a naked, bloody, screaming demoniac coming down the, the mountainside. Now you say, what's funny about that? Well, Jesus got off the boat, but I don't ever read that the disciples did. (laughs) Right? I mean, you can't blame them, can you? Would you? It's already been a long night. They're probably really confused, really afraid, paralyzed with fear. So Jesus, again, takes the lead here. This is all about Jesus. That's what Mark is wanting to draw us in with. Watch what Jesus does here. That's the underlying principle in this entire account. So... I told you last week, we're trying some experiments with PowerPoints. I've never been a PowerPoint guy, and I'm just giving you the disclaimer. But I want to throw the outline up there real quick for you. So again, three things. We're going to talk about how Jesus reacted when he found this man who was enslaved. And we're going to talk about what slavery is, what does it mean to be enslaved, what does it mean to be liberated, and how does that happen. And the end result, when Jesus... Uh, liberates us, and then he sends us back. Where does he send us to? What does Jesus expect from us? What kind of a witness does he intend for us to be after that? So those are the three points that we want to cover this morning. And here's the first one, enslaved, enslaved. I know that word is is probably uh, a little bit controversial to a lot of people, But, beloved, the Bible talks about slavery a lot, and and not in the historical ways that we wrestle with in our our nation. It talks about it in terms of bondage, helplessness. We are completely at the mercy and the whims of an outside uh, outside force that has just taken us captive and is controlling us, and that there's nothing we can do about it. One of my heroes of the faith is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a doctor in London and had a very promising, lucrative career as one of the Queen's main physicians, Sir Thomas Horder. And that was his master. That was his mentor. And that man was going on a summer vacation and he asked Lloyd-Jones to do him uh, a service. He said, would you go through all of my case files? Now, obviously back then they didn't have computers. They had everything on those probably files. You've been to the old offices before computers came and seen stacks and stacks of files what would have been no different back then He was in his late 50s, and he had seen probably thousands of patients And he said Lloyd-Jones I want you to go through every one of these cases and I have them categorized by names But I want you to catalog them by diseases. In other words I want to be able to say what is wrong with these people and so dr. Lloyd-Jones He became a pastor and years later. He would write that was one of the most educational instructive um, activities that I've ever engaged in, because what he found was that over, get this, 50% of the people that came to see that famous doctor had a disease that wasn't in the heart, it wasn't physical that they could uh, discern, it wasn't biological, it was more um, spiritual, it was a disease of the soul. They would write things, he said, I found notes that the doctor made like, eats too much, drinks too much, goes out too much is unhappy at home, and on and on and on, and Lloyd-Jones said, I was just in my mind. That was the time that God was dealing with him with this call into full-time pastoral ministry, and he said these people needed help that this doctor, and really no doctor at that time, was able to give them. They didn't have a disease of the heart. They didn't have cancer. They didn't have some kind of autoimmune deficiency syndrome or a virus. They had a disease of the soul, and nobody could help them. They needed the help that that nobody was pointing them to. And Lloyd-Jones, it was through that encounter, really, that God called him into full-time ministry so he could give those people the kind of help that they really needed. And I want you to look at the conditions. You can pull this next slide up here. Look at the conditions of this man. When you read this story, your heart just goes out to him. And listen, I don't want us to get so caught up in the details of what happened on that day. I want you to think in modern terms. When you read these descriptions, think of yourself yourself. Think of the people that you encounter in your life. I, I think sometimes if we're honest, we'll read a story like this and, and we'll get caught up in the, and it's good too, we, there, there's, there's a wide teaching here. We get really hung up just on the demonic activity, which is a powerful reality there. And we think, well, you know, this guy probably played with a Ouija board or something like that, or he was doing something that, that he shouldn't have been doing. And that may very well have been true. I don't know if they had Ouija boards back then, but listen, um, when you read about people who were possessed with demons in the New Testament, I don't recall ever Jesus rebuking them for something that they did to get them in that situation. Because listen, friends, the reality is the most dangerous thing that we can do is reject biblical truth. Because listen, that opens you up to all kinds of oppression, demonic and satanic. It's the most unsafe place to be is rejecting the truth that God has given us in his word and that we hear from preachers and that we encounter with the gospel conversations that we have. And so I want you to think this may not be a person that you go down to Skid Row and find or the person playing with the Ouija board or the person in prison. This may be somebody in your own family. This may be you. This may be somebody that you're talking at the water cooler with at work. This may be the person that's serving you at your restaurant, your neighbor. So what were the symptoms here? Look at this. This man was a slave. He was an absolute slave. He lived in a terrible place. And he couldn't leave. There was nothing he could do to get out of that place. He lived among the tombs in Decapolis. Listen, this was the worst of the worst. It was an unclean place. He lived uh, because Decapolis was a Greek and Gentile region. They were considered unclean to the Jews. I know it's a terrible reality, but that was the way it was then. They were considered unclean. You couldn't go where they were. Couldn't touch them if you were a Jew. He lived in an unclean clean place. He lived in the tombs, in the graveyard. If you touched the dead anything, if you were a Jew, you were defiled for seven days and had to go outside of the camp. Um, and he lived amongst the people that were occupied in an unclean vocation with pigs. This was a terrible place for him to be. He was in a deplorable condition. He was naked. He was unclean. He probably, can you imagine just what it, what it would look like to see him? He was in a deplorable condition, he was dangerous, he was restless, he roamed around. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of them says he was in the tombs, and then he moved to the mountains, and then the demons would drive him out in the desert. He was just a puppet, he was a ragdoll for these demons. They would drive him wherever he wanted, wherever they wanted him to go, and he was helpless to do anything to resist it. He was uncontrollable, he was afraid, he was in pain, he was always crying out, cutting himself in agony. You know, he probably cut himself because it was the only thing he could control. It was the only thing um, that made him feel alive, was to inflict pain on himself. You ever, you ever heard of anything like that? Does that sound remotely um, parallel to any encounters you've had? Man, that sounds like a lot of Americans. That sounds like a lot of teenagers. I read one commentary that was written by a pastor, and he said, I have never in my three decades of ministry encountered a passage that teenagers most identi- more identify with than this. They feel alone, they feel misunderstood, they feel confused, they feel rejected, agonizing in pain. Did you know that suicide claims, suicide is the number two killer for teenagers ages 18 to 24, number two killer suicide is. That's a terrible reality, that's an American statistic. 45,000 people a year in America take their life. Why? Because they probably have symptoms that are very similar to what this man had. Apart from Christ, hopeless, helpless, alone, afraid, isolated, violent, uncontrollable, angry. He was desperate, he was suspicious, he was confused, and there was nothing that he could do about it. It's a really sad condition. He was a slave of sin. And the thing that he needed was a new birth. He needed to be made a new creation in Christ. And there are a lot of parallels. You can go to the next one here. Maybe this one's more familiar to you. You guys remember him? I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. I am. And, and, I, and you have to know that when J.R. Tolkien wrote this, man, there are so many biblical parallels that are in it. It says that Gollum found this ring of power, and it poisoned his mind, and gave him supernatural, long life, and it took him down underneath the misty mountains, and it absolutely consumed him. He forgot his name. He forgot what it was like to dwell amongst the community that he was in. He became angry, tormented, violent, distrustful. That's what sin does to us. And I know that sin and Satan work in tandem. Satan came to kill and rob and destroy and deceive deceive and enslave. And sin does those things too. It does. It dominated him. It dominated him. It's interesting that Mark, when he's describing this man, he keeps using the word no. He keeps using the word no. Look at this. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chain, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So here's what's really scary about this, guys, and I want you to hear me, okay? Sin seems to make you stronger when you give yourself to it. Did you know that? The things that make you feel alive, that make you feel in control of your life, that give you pleasure, that make you feel embraced, make you feel like you belong, that you're important. Those are empowering things. But listen, they also weaken you at the same time. That's the riddle and the parable of sin. It strengthens you, but it weakens you. Because the scariest thing about this passage is when it says no longer. See, at one time, he could control this. That's always, what unbel- that's always the lie that unbelief and sin tells us. You can control this. Whatever it is, whatever idol you're giving yourself to, whatever is consuming you, whatever is controlling you, whatever it is that, that keeps you up at night and gets you up in the morning that's not Christ, you might not be a bloody, screaming, cut-up lunatic in a graveyard, but I can tell you this, you're a slave. And the Bible says when you're in Christ, you're no longer enslaved to sin, that the power of sin has been broken in your life. So we don't have to live like a slave. We don't have to live like an orphan when we're in Christ. But so often we do. And it's the same power that this demoniac and coward uh, encountered on that beach that day that, that will release us, beloved. The same power. Compassion and power meet together. This man at one point had control of his life. And then maybe, I don't know what it was, more demons came, more demons. You know what the word legion means? It means 6,000. It's a Latin term that maybe this demon borrowed because he was in a Roman occupied territory with lots of Roman soldiers. Some people think he was trying to intimidate Jesus when Jesus said, What's your name? And he said, Legion's my name. We're many. I don't think Jesus was intimidated, do you? (laughs) No, he didn't even have to call on a higher power to cast this demon out, which was the, that was in vogue in the day. If you were gonna be an exorcist and you were gonna cast out demons, you had to call on a, a higher power to do that, but there was no higher power, power. Jesus didn't need to call on anybody else. He had the power that he needed. He didn't even have to roll up his sleeves or sweat. He said, out of the man. Get out of him, leave. It's really interesting how this all went down. So this man was a slave. He was helpless. He was hopeless. He, listen, he was out of control, wild and violent. And look, these things parallel what Jesus just did. Again, Mark wants you to know this. The things that are wild, violent, dangerous unpredictable and uncontrollable, Jesus is Lord over those things. Whether it's a storm or whether it's a crazy demon-possessed man, he's Lord. And he tames them. He can tame them and control them. Man, what a before and after picture you see in this story that's so encouraging. He was defiled. This is one of the most graphic des- descriptions of what sin and Satan do to us, I think, anywhere in the Bible. You know, the, the rabbis of that day, they would list four characteristics for demon-possession. One was, get this, walking about at night, check. Spending time in tombs and graves, check. Tearing your clothes, check. Destroying personal property, check. Man, this sounds like my neighborhood in Delan. I don't know about you. There's a lot of stuff going on over there. Now, sin always empowers you. It always promises you something that it can't possibly deliver. And listen, it will take you further than you want to go, it will keep you longer than you want to stay and it will cost you more than you were ever willing to pay That's what it did with Charles Tex Watson. And listen, you don't have to be a mass murderer to know that experience, that terrible reality. We're all, we've all been victims. We've all uh, been slaves of sin, the Bible says. In fact, there is a, this is in more places than just Mark. Look what the Bible says about this reality of being enslaved. Galatians 4, eight says, formerly, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. Galatians says it. Listen to Romans 6. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, because if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You have become slaves of righteousness. Romans 6. And then Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Do you hear that in all those passages? Uh, the world, the devil, and the flesh. Apart from the power of Christ, guys, we are all helpless to those things. And any person in this room could testify to that. Any person. Look, we're not yet glorified. We're not yet glorified. There's still this battle. And there's days when we feel like we're losing. And we need to be reminded of this, that Jesus is powerful and he's there and he's compassionate. And he can control this when we can't. There's there's a beauty and a power in that confession. This is out of my control. This is out of my control, God. This is your problem. I'm absolutely helpless. There's nothing I can do about it. I have a very good friend. I won't mention his name, but he wouldn't mind for you mentioning his name. He's got a beautiful testimony. He grew up at one of the churches that I ministered in. He spent most of his life there. And he, one day, was arrested in a sting operation. I mean, this was like the worst thing you can imagine happening to you as a, as a young single man. And he was a teacher, very respectable, very good teacher. And he got caught up in this thing. It started with lust, curiosity, the Internet, pornography. And then it got really vile and just out of control, and it dominated his life. And he was in some kind of a chat. It was a sting operation. And I think it was a young teenager. They were pretending to be a young teenager. And they were going to meet him up. You know how the routine goes at a gas station. And later he would say this. He would say, I knew this was wrong. I knew this was vile. I knew this was disgusting. I knew it was ungodly. I was being disobedient. It was a bad idea. And I shouldn't do this. I can't do this. He said, "I, I told myself that when I got in the car and when I started the engine. And when I left my driveway, I said, can't be doing this. You've got to turn around. You've got to go back. He said the, the tentacles of this thing were just so deep, so entrenched and wrapped around him. He said, when I got to the exit off the interstate, I said, don't take that exit. Just keep going. Just keep going. Take the next exit. Do a U-turn. Repent and go home and ask God to cleanse you. But he said, I didn't. I took the exit. I mean, he kept repeating this thing. and He pulled in the gas station. and Look, praise God. Listen, God is so merciful because it wasn't a teenage girl. It was an officer that was there and they arrested him. They arrested him. And, and, and you could say at some level it ruined his life. But at another level, at another level, he was exposed. And he said, man, the sin was out in the open, and I finally could deal with it. And say, Lord, I can't control this. This is absolutely out of control. I thought I could control it when I was toying around with it. I would just look at this or watch this video. He said, but it had its tentacles in me, and it was beyond me. I couldn't do anything. It, it was an uncontrollable raging lust that I had. And I know some people don't have a stomach for that kind of thing. They say, oh, it serves them right. But listen, guys, sin is powerful. That's what God, you know, the first description of sin in the Bible is by God himself. And he's talking to Cain. And remember what he said? He said, sin is at the door and its desire is for you. Its desire is for you to take you. It's this sinister. It was a sinister description of of sin, like a crouching animal just waiting patiently for your moment of weakness to pounce on you. Because we all have weaknesses. And often the enemy knows those weaknesses and is waiting. But listen, God is merciful and God is powerful and God is compassionate. So let's talk about the liberation. Let's talk about the liberation here. Let's get to the good stuff. I don't want to talk about slavery the entire time But listen, guys. There there is a power in reminding ourselves um, that God is the liberator. He is the one who can come and control the wild thing in our life that's just outside of our realm of help. Look what it says here. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now just stop right there for a minute, because I really want to apply this. I want to I really put this in shoe leather for you, okay? There are so many people that they know about Jesus, and maybe they, they come to a service like this and they, they hear a little bit about the gospel, and they're thinking in their mind something really similar to what this man is saying. Again, let's, let's modernize this a little bit, okay? Basically, what this man was saying was, Jesus, swear you're not going to torment me. Swear you're not going to torture me. I don't know. I wish I knew. I have more questions than answers uh, some of these narratives like this. Maybe those, those demons were whispering lies to him. Ah, oh, here he is. He's here, the Most High. The Son of the Most High God is here, and He's holy, and He's just. And He has judgment against sin. And Look at you, you're filthy. You're out of control. He doesn't want you. He's here to destroy you. He's holy, and you're unholy. Maybe this man was believing those lies. So you, you see this, this torment in his mind. He's running, he's running toward Jesus, but he's afraid of Jesus. Don't you know a lot of people like that? What's Jesus going to do to me? Is He, is he going to destroy my life, or is He going to redeem my life? They just want like this guilt edge guarantee. God, you're not going to torment me, are you? I mean, I want, I want your help. I want to give myself to you, but, but I'm scared. I'm afraid. There's a lot of people just like that, just like that. And Jesus says, no, I'm not in the tormenting business. I'm in the liberating business. I didn't come here to torment you. Those days are over. And the demons were saying the same thing. Please send us away. Don't torment us. See the hypocrisy of demons? Don't do to us what we've done to this man for who knows how many years, right? This is one of the most interesting things. And and look at, let's pull this slide up. Look at what happens here. Look at what happens here. Jesus casts the demons out, right, into the pigs. They do a swine dive over the edge of the the cliff. They become deviled ham. And so they're gone. The demons are gone. And then there's this man left, this crushed form of a man. But, but, but look at the change. Look at the change, ladies and gentlemen. Because all the villagers left, all the herdsmen, they left and they told it. They broadcast this news all over the place. You won't believe what happened to the crazy, bloody lunatic that lives in the graveyard. And when they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed, and in his right mind, they were afraid. Very similar to the last section in chapter 4. When the disciples were on the boat and when the storm was still, they were exceedingly fearful. Phobos is the word in Greek. It means in awe. It could be this slash between fear and terror and just awe and respect. These people were blown away by this. See, his former master shredded him, divided him. He had divided personalities. This whole narrative is crazy. When you read what this man and what these demons are saying, sometimes it's in the singular tense. Sometimes it's in the plural tense. The sin, the demonic activity, it had split him into a million pieces. His clothes were just a a window into what his heart was like, shredded, torn to bits. But he has a new master now, doesn't he? And he's no longer driven by this demon. He's at peace finally. Man, I can tell you the testimonies that you hear from people. The one thing they will tell you when Christ comes into their life, when he, when he liberates them from bondage, when he sets them free, the one overarching word to describe it is peace. I'm at peace. God brought me finally what nobody else could, what nobody else had the power or the willingness to do. They gave me peace. He was seated. He was clothed. He was no longer naked, perverted, disgusting, he was no longer roaming about the tombs. He was at the feet of Christ. He took on the, de- the posture of a follower. He was no longer deranged. He was in his right mind. And yeah, that blew people away, and it still does, and it should. Because such a, there was such a marked contrast between who he was and what he did and the difference that Christ had made in his life. Those are the lies that Satan still tells us. God's going to wreck your life if you go to him. Jesus is is going to torment you. He's going to demand things of you you are unwilling and unable to give. And Jesus says, look at this picture. Look at this picture. Look at the before and look at the after. You tell me who has the peace. Who has the love. who, Who has the stability and the security. Whose life is then anchored and secure. It's the person who knows Christ. Who knows the peace that only Jesus Christ can bring. And that's still the case for people that have this uncontrollable greed or lust or anger or hate. And listen, I know our nation says, look, let's just all come together and make this world a better place. Listen, friends, I would love for that to happen. I would love to sing the Michael Jackson song, heal the world, make it a better place. But listen, apart from Christ, that's not going to happen. Everything else outside of the Prince of Peace is helpless to create peace. We're going to have more wars. We're going to have more hate. We're going to have more tyranny. We're going to have more political rambling and, and, and division. I mean, we can't even control the church, let alone politically the world. It's because of Christ. Who, he's the answer. He's what we need. We need His peace. We need His power. See, the devil always tries, he always tries to hide the mercy of God, doesn't he? Look at what Jesus said when he said, you can't stay with me. You can't go with me. You've got to stay here. And you go, what did he say? Go tell them how powerful I am? Is that what he said? What did he tell that man? You go tell these people about the compassion and the mercy that the Lord had on you. That's what he did. He was liberated. He was liberated. Old Master ripped him to pieces. You know, some people have called this chapter in the Bible the Saint Jude of the New Testament. And I'm not getting Roman Catholic on here or anything. He's the, he's the patron he's the patron saint of helpless causes. Did you know that? Not, not far from where I grew up, there's a hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, called St. Jude's Medical Research Hospital. And supposedly, um, children that have incurable diseases, that's where they send them. And listen, for people that have incurable diseases of the soul, this is the chapter for them to remind them and us. There's hope with Jesus, and he can provide the help and the power and the transformation that everybody else in every other organization that promises, it's bunk. They can't deliver it. Jesus, when he came, he preached this message. This is one of the first sermons he preached in Luke 4. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to set the prisoners free. That's what he came to do, and that's what he did. And you say, how is that? Listen, there is a mysterious power in the cross and in the gospel. You, You know that, don't you? The gospel can do what nothing else is able to do. It can do what the law can't do. The Bible says that the gospel, the message, the saving message about Jesus Christ coming to take the place of guilty sinners like you and me and die in their place and give them his righteousness, that's the gospel message. The Bible says that the gospel... Of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. That word in Greek is dunamis. It's, It's the Greek word from which we get dynamite. And I've told you this before. I had a Greek professor in seminary and he said, don't you ever compare the power of the gospel to the power of dynamite. It's not that we get the word dynamite. He said we get the word dynamic from it because the gospel doesn't blow things up. The gospel puts things together again. That's how we measure men's power You know, July 4th is coming up, and we're going to see who has the most powerful firework. How do we know? The thing that blows up, we call the fire department, right? Somebody gets their arm blown off. Man, that was a powerful M550. I don't know how how big the numbers go now. But listen, Jesus measures power by the things he can put back together. He can put together your life. He can control that, that, that sin that's so out of control. And maybe there's demonic influence and oppression. I don't know. But God does, and he has the power to liberate. He did then and he does now. God's love is the only thing powerful enough to break the power of sin. And His Holy Spirit gives us that power. Okay, last point here. Where? Now i got to finish quick here, okay? This is the craziest thing in this whole story to me, okay? This is, this is crazy, and I want you to wrap your mind around this as, as we close out and leave. Because the only request that makes sense in this whole story, everyone's begging Jesus. It's the same word in Greek. They're entreating him. They're begging him. They're imploring him. The demons are begging him, please, please, um, don't send us into the pit before our time. Don't torture us. Send us away into these pigs. The townsfolk come. and What's their reaction? They're afraid, and they say, Jesus, go away. Just get far away from us. Um, as you possibly can. Maybe it was because he ruined their economy with 2,000 pigs. It would have been a lot of money. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. But there's a lot of begging going on. Demons beg him uh, to send them away. The townspeople beg Jesus to go away. But what does this healed demoniac beg Jesus for? Take a look at this. Check this out. Don't miss this. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Now, let me ask you a question. What's the only request that makes sense in this story? His. And that's the only one that Jesus denies. Jesus says, demons, you want to go into the pigs? Fine, I grant you permission. Townspeople, you want me to go away? I'll get my boat. I'm not going to force myself where I'm not welcome. But the man that wants to go with Jesus, Jesus says, no, you can't can't go. I mean, isn't that crazy? All the gospels, Jesus is begging, almost in a sense, imploring people, follow me, follow me. Lay down your nets, disciples. Lay down your occupation. Lay down your life. Deny yourself. Follow me. Here's a man that says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, No. No, you're staying here. What's going on here? What is going on here? See, here's what's going on here. Jesus is going to leave a saving monument of his grace and his mercy in this unclean region. Because they want Jesus to leave, but this man, he's staying. They know him, they know his testimony. They know how helpless and powerless and out of control and wild he was and violent and vile and just riddled with demons. And Jesus still does that. Now, that's a strategy, to cross a land to an unclean regency. Jesus had 82 other disciples that he was going to commission. We got this side of the, of the Sea of Galilee covered. See, that's the hard place that nobody wants to go over there. That man says, please, please get me out of here. And Jesus says, no, you've got to stay. you got to stay. He sent him back. A lot of people, when they preach this, they talk about Jesus can liberate you, and He can, it's true. He has, and He will again. But we have to ask a deeper question. I want to leave you with the gospel when you think about this liberation. How was it that Jesus was able to do this? And here's the way the, the hint comes at the end of Jesus' life. Because see, this man, you can pull that slide back up. This man was naked, he was bloody, he was a prisoner, he was alone, he was outside the city, he was in pain. And he was screaming in agony and darkness. So how can can Jesus, the clean, the holy, the pure, the undefiled, how can he cleanse and transform and liberate somebody like that? Because that's a hard thing to do, guys. You can't just say, wave your hand and it's done. No, there had to be a transaction that took place. Jesus was his substitute. That's a big theme in Mark's gospel. Chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come... To be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom means take the place of. There's an exchange. There's a substitute. See, Jesus would become stripped naked. He would become a prisoner. He would be bloody. He would be alone outside the city, crucified outside the gate. He would be a stranger, deserted, isolated, rejected by society. He would be crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in pain and in darkness? That's the only way that anybody can be liberated and delivered. It's when Jesus trades places with us, and that's the gospel, and that's the power. That's why the gospel is so powerful, because Jesus trades places with us. And then here's the last thing. Do you know the Great Commission? Um, it's, It's the famous story in Matthew 28, the final instructions of Christ, and again in Acts 1, it says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. One of my favorite theologians said this. He said, it's really easy to disobey the Great Commission by reading it backwards. Here's what he meant by that. Next slide. Do you know that that was a strategy when Jesus was giving them final instructions? Jerusalem was the central location. Then there was Judea, a little bit further, a little bit more regional, but local, and then there was Samaria, and then you were getting into the outskirts, and then the uttermost ends of the world. And listen, I know it's very, probably it's a lot, feels a little bit safer and easier for us. And I'm being dead serious because I've done this, and i felt this way to go to the uttermost parts of the world where people don't know me. They don't know my struggles. They don't know my problems. I can just get a bus ticket or get on an airplane uh, and drop out of the sky and do a little short-term mission work. And those are beautiful and wonderful and great, and I know they help the missionaries that are over there. But friends, listen, that's reading and doing the Great Commission backwards. It starts in Jerusalem. It starts in your neighborhood. That's why Jesus said, no, you're not going anywhere. You're staying right here. You're going to go and you're going to tell your family. Another another version in Matthew, I think, and, and, and Luke says, go tell your family and your friends how the Lord has had compassion on you. And you know what it says? It says, he went about all the region, all the cities. This guy was a ma- I mean, he was a maniac that turned missionary. He was the missionary, but he didn't go anywhere. He didn't have to go anywhere. He went home. He went home and he shared and demonstrated the power and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And you know what the most interesting thing about this whole thing is? Listen to the very last listen to the very last verse here. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Listen. And everyone Marveled. That verb is in the imperfect tense, meaning people continue to marvel. I think this man had an amazing ministry. He had fruit that was low hanging on all of the evangelistic campaigns he did, but he never went anywhere. He just stayed home. That's the hardest thing to do, friends. That's the hardest thing to do is share the transforming power of Christ with the people in your life, at the water cooler, in your family, in the classroom, in the neighborhood. That's what God called this man to do, and that's what he still calls us to do. It's really easy to disobey the Great Commission. You remember Billy Sunday? He was an amazing baseball athlete that turned evangelist, I think, in Chicago in the end of the 1800s. And, man, he was just—he a compelling speaker, and everyone recognized you're a great evangelist. So they, he and his wife had four kids together, and when the fourth child was born, they went on this long, circuitous uh, campaign all over the United States, preaching the gospel to everybody. And they left their four kids in the care of a nanny at home. Now, this was in the late 1800s when America was a lot more conservative. Between his three sons, they were married nine times. One committed suicide. One died in a drunken um, accident, drunk driving accident in a car. And the other, I think, had been drinking and crashed his airplane and died. See, Billy Sunday, and, and God bless him, he did a lot of good in America. But listen, it's really easy to disobey or ignore The Great Commission, by reading it backwards, starts at your Jerusalem. It starts in your neighborhood and your family and your home. It starts in your own heart. Just to preach the gospel to yourself, to remind yourself when those out-of-control issues come into your life and those sins, that, that Christ has power and Christ has compassion. And he is for us and he is with us. And he came to destroy the works of the devil